0: Welcome to the Upper Room Community Church Podcast. Wherever you are in your journey, we hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and provide practical ways to strengthen your relationships. To find out more, visit us at UpperRoom.ca. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? My tears have been my food day and night, while people say to me all day long, where's your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I used to go to the house of God, under the protection of the Mighty One, with shouts of joy and praise among the festive throng. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for yet I will praise Him my savior and my God. My soul is downcast within me. Therefore, I will remember you from the land of the Jordan, from the heights of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls. All your waves and breakers have swept over me. By day, the Lord directs his love. At night, his song is with me. A prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, Why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? My bones suffer mortal agony as my foes taunt me, saying to me all day long, where's your God? Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for yet I will praise Him, my Savior and my God. I'm not okay three and a half simple words. You don't need a degree in English literature to understand them. People pretty much of any age who can talk at all can say it. In that sense, it's sort of a universally recognized admission of things are not good. I'm not doing well. I can't cope. I'm not in a good place right now. I'm not okay in a sense is something we immediately understand that we may not know the details of why. Maybe something to help you sort of think about what this even looks like in the world that we live in, in the nation that we're a part of. Uh, There's a survey uh, done by a work placement organization surveying 600 managers and 400 workers and what they found is 95, 95% of people in Canadian workforce, 400 people surveyed, uh, describe experiencing some kind of burnout in the workplace. A StatsCan study found that 41% of people report dealing with or having some kind of experience of acute anxiety at some point in the last 12 months. Um further goes on to say that 25% of people have experienced a kind of serious depression which they are, are needing treatment for. And that same study over time says about 15% of people, not, not in any given year, but 15% of people who would express having a serious kind of depression, it ends in suicide for a number of people. These are staggering statistics. Um, Here's another one, 50%, one in two, if you you want to even think about looking at the person to your left or to your right, one in two, by the age of 40, will have or have had a struggle with mental illness. And that's through a survey with the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. It's here in uh, downtown Toronto in our city. That same CAMH survey found that among post-secondary students that 65% of them described experiencing some kind of anxiety in the last 12 months, Um, many of that 65% saying to the point where it was difficult to even function. And this one, which is another staggering number, that in any given week, 500,000 Canadians will not report to work due to mental illness. And that was also uh, a survey done by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. And so these are um, surveys associated with Canadians, like people, and maybe many of you in the room could say, yeah, I'm a part of that, I'm in that number, or, or definitely I know people who are. And whether or not you would use the term mental health or mental illness to describe it, if we just sort of step back, even if you wouldn't use the words stress, burnout, anxiety, depression, or suicide. If we think about the fact that um, when it comes to mental health, and even the term mental health maybe is too narrow of a term because what health professionals are realizing and what maybe you have realized as well in your own journey, and your journey with other people, this isn't simply about a mental cognitive thing. Of course, uh, uh, it includes um, mental cognitive things, but also behavior, also spiritual, spirituality, also emotions, also the, the physical body, that all of these things are actually connected and that many of us, either because of a situation or relationship or a season or because of something that is going on mentally or spiritually or physically or behaviorally or emotionally, would be able to say, yeah, I'm not okay. And so we can just say, like, this is a widespread thing. This is something that a vast number of us are experiencing firsthand or secondhand, have had in the past or are going through at the present or maybe in the future. And yet, Why does it seem like it's still so hard to say it? To actually admit I'm not okay, to say it out loud. CAMH also did a survey, now this was in 2008, but saying that 50% of people would have a hard time telling a friend or a colleague if one of their family members was experiencing mental illness. This is not actually saying about if they were, they would have a hard time, one in two people telling a friend that someone in their family was experiencing this, not even them firsthand. And so um, we know, and this is the, the same study went on to say that things have changed as people have become more aware and a lot of awareness and advocacy that is happening across the board and companies like Bell who are sponsoring you know, Mental Health Awareness Month and things like that. And so that awareness has increased. And yet, and so maybe those numbers Have changed. And yet, still a study as recently as 2016 said 40% of people who reported having anxiety or depression have not gone for any kind of help. And so that that there's still a reluctance or an inability to say, I'm not okay and I need help. Now there's all kinds of reasons why this is hard to admit. Um, For some of us, it's a personality thing. I know for the longest time, my personality, my parents said growing up that basically my life consisted of trying to string together as many fun events in my life as I could. Like that was just all I really sort of cared about. Um, And for me, I had an emotional state of like, I'm happy or I'm bored and a little unhappy. And that was it. And that was all I wanted in life. And as I grew older, I realized one of the things is that made me unable to really understand or relate to people who were saying I'm not okay. And And as I realized, man, I'm not really a good friend to people who are struggling, I actually realized, wait, I don't think I know even when I'm not okay. I was not really even in touch with my emotions for a long period of my life. I didn't understand the deeper level of, you know, some people use the analogy of the iceberg of what's above the surface and below the surface. I was aware of the 10% that was above the surface and not the 90% that was below. And so maybe you're like me, that some of your personality or makeup or whatever reasons, and I've been working out, well, why is that? for some of us, it's just like we, we don't even have an ability to identify when we're not doing okay. Um, for others, it, it may be actually like a a family background thing. And so some of you that have come from families and cultures that are honor shame cultures, one of the things you know is you never talk about your personal stuff or your family stuff in public. What you do in public is make sure that, you know, in Italian culture, it's called la figura, you know, the face or every culture has its description of it. It's like you make sure everybody out there knows everything's fine and whatever's going on at home stays at home. Um, Partly because if you're going to say, I'm not doing well or I'm not okay, that not only is a shameful thing to admit, because weakness is not a thing you admit in certain cultures, but it brings shame on your family. So the family pressure to make sure you don't ever say things aren't okay is quite strong. It was interesting, the World Health Organization did a survey on this, and what they found is there were actually differing levels of mental health and mental illness by culture. And what they found is but that some of the cultures that reported less incidents of mental health were actually, in some cases, honor-shame cultures. And so when they surveyed, general surveyed the population, less people admitted to experiencing that. But when they went into people's homes and they asked married couples, they asked one spouse whether their spouse had ever struggled with mood disorders or depression or anxiety, the levels actually were reported much higher. And so actually what they found is no, not as many real differences 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 from culture to culture in that when we actually get to the heart of it because you can see it in other people and yet some of you that are from those cultures know you it's not something you say well or my family doesn't understand this or wouldn't understand it or my cultural background this is not something it's not okay to not be okay in my family background in some cases, there can be generational differences. Tom Broca, who famously labeled the generation that, you know, uh, war, uh, it labored through the depression, worked in the war, and came home, um, one of the things they know, the collateral damage of being a generation that just muscled through, is you had to turn off the emotional taps to get through the depression, to get through the war. But then when they came back, they never turned them back on. And so some of us have generational issues where certain generations are like, we don't talk about this. What, what do you mean you're not okay? You just put your head down and you muscle through through and you just make it through. There's no time or there's no room for someone to say, I'm not doing okay. And so maybe you're someone who you would say, well, my peers, you know, my work colleagues or my brothers and sisters of that generation, we don't talk about that. So even if I felt that I could never say it out loud. And, and sometimes there's generational challenges to admitting this. And some of us are just maybe reluctant to acknowledge the connection that, that physical symptoms can have actually emotional, psychological, or spiritual roots. And so we're in this place where we, this, is, this is a universal almost human experience, even in this room, and yet it's so hard to actually admit it. Now, we do have a culture, as we said, that is more open to this. But our culture's response to I'm not okay it is, is helpful and at times not helpful. One of the responses is in our culture that there is permission but no direction. This is permission, uh, picture of Chester Bennington, who was one of my favorite artists and songwriters. He fronted the band Lincoln Park for many years. And in 2017, he tragically uh, took his life. Suicide. And it was interesting when I read the blog posts and just the people responding to it. I remember my neighbor came to me in tears one day because he was a big fan. He's like, and he was more like, What's going on with the world? And we were talking about how it's interesting because people were shocked as they should be. And at the same time, people were saying, yeah, but we shouldn't be shocked. All of his lyrics, all of his songs were telling the story from the beginning. And not like recently, like, hey, it looked like it was starting to take a dark turn. From the beginning, his songs you know, crawling in my skin, I feel numb. Why is everything so heavy? It would be better if I could just leave. And people wrote, many people said, I so related to his music. I loved it. It gave me permission to be brutally honest, to be raw. And and that is one of the things that we can credit today's music industry and the media of today is we're not telling nice, naive, and maybe glossed over stories anymore. People are being brutally honest. And I think it's a backlash against some of the maybe more fake stuff of like everything's great and all of that. Um, But there's sort of permission to be brutally honest. And just like Chester was in his music, that people so related to the permission, to the brutal honesty, and at the same time, there was no direction in it. It's a tragedy in a sense. People were saying, it's so tragic. We knew he felt this way. This is what made him famous. This is why we loved his music. But nobody could help him. And so we live in a culture that says, yeah, but he, there's permission to be brutally honest, but there's not much direction that's like, what do I do with this other than just bleed? We also have in our culture escape. And, you know, escape for a night or for a vacation or escaping to somewhere beautiful, okay, that's all all good. But there are destructive things that can happen when we say, I don't know how to be not okay. I don't know how to deal with what reality is in my mind, in my heart, in my relationships, in my behavior, in my spirit. And so I'm just going to pull the escape hatch. And many of the escape hatches we have are actually destructive, partly because when we come back from binge-watching television or whatever it is, we're, we're not in any better shape to deal with the, the, the situations that are making things not okay. And in some cases, as I said to you, one of my greatest um, concerns about the fact that we as a country have recently legalized pot is simply because we have brought in the legalization of a drug like that, an escape drug, with a time when there are epidemic levels, especially with young people of anxiety and depression. And so the need to escape is even higher than ever, and now we have made escape possible. And so whether it's drugs or porn or overeating or whatever, there are escapes that not only don't help us deal with reality, they actually begin to destroy us from the inside out. They can actually compound the behavioral, relational, emotional, and psychological issues that we're dealing with. And so so there's permission but no direction, there's escape, and then there's community without accountability. And this is an interesting one because there is this invitation, you know, to say, hey, be honest, be part of this community. It's okay to not be okay. And that's true. And yet there is our idea of community and love in our culture is you have to accept me as I am, and you're not allowed to critique who I am. You're not allowed to actually say, well, maybe you know, maybe there's some things you're doing that are contributing to the fact that you're not okay. We don't want that kind of accountability. We want acceptance without any kind of interference or someone saying, hey, have you ever thought about this? And so some of these things can be helpful, but in many ways not helpful as well. And that's kind of how our culture is dealing with this. And so um, I think one of the questions we can also have is like, well, who or where is God when I'm not okay. Because let's be honest, aside from our culture, for those of us that are people of faith, this is actually even more complicated. Where is God in all of this? What does He think about my mental, emotional, physical behavior, relational state? What does He think about what's going on in me? Where is He in this? And how do I find Him in it? And so really what we want to do and the goal of this series over the next... Um, six weeks as we are wading into this is to say we want to know like uh, you know I'm not a healthcare professional that's not what we, the leaders of our church are not subject matter experts in terms of you know medical professionals we do have people like that in our congregation we want to give you resources of people you can connect with and counselors and uh, psychologists and things like that but our approach to this as the community of faith is is first and foremost where is God in this how do you whether you consider yourself to be someone of faith or not where do you how do you find god in the middle of your journey of not being okay friends also we want to we want to become a community that is a refuge for a world. If this is really a pandemic, if the stats are really true, and if people are actually coming to the point where suicide is a viable or sometimes even the only option left, if if death and a way out and an exit and a permanent escape, if people are actually considering, well, maybe this is my alternative, the church has to stand up and say, no, we want to be a place and a community where people can find refuge from the storms, where people can find help, where it's not an escape, but it's a refuge. And so we want to become, we need to become a community like that. And then how do we as a family, as the family of faith, the family of Christ, truly help each other and be safe and that the church as a family can be a safe place as we are working through this together, as we're okay to not be okay, but to not be alone in this and actually be um, have a community that comes around us to help us walk through this. And so that's what we're doing <clears throat> over these next six weeks. Throughout this time, the guide that is going to help us um, is the book of Psalms, because I think the question of who or where is God in this is an important one. Um, if, if you were to try to answer that question and you list, just looked at your church experience, here's what you might conclude God is like. You might say, well, God, you know, God's concerned with triumph and victory and overcoming my problems. Like, in fact, a lot of the songs we sing, a lot of the worship songs we sing, we talk about miracles and overcoming and faith and triumph and Jesus' victory over death. And yes, there was a cross, but there's an empty grave, all of which is true. But in many ways, either implicitly or or explicitly, we can come to the place, there's no room in that then for grief, for loss, for doubt, for trials and struggles that seem to persist well past the point of no return where there's a cross experience and there is no empty grave that has come as yet that we can find that the church is not a place where these things are permitted or given because, hey, aren't we supposed to overcome and aren't we supposed to be healed and aren't we supposed to get better? And so sometimes we can think, oh, that's what God is. He's concerned with triumph and fixing me and everything being better and victory and being an overcomer. And what happens if I'm not in that place? Sometimes the church or Christian friends around us can can give us pithy or trite or what I call little memory verse kind of solutions for what we're dealing with. Oh, don't worry, every cloud has a silver lining and here's a verse to support it. And we can pluck out verses and you know, saying, oh, I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, to give you hope in a future. Oh, God doesn't withhold anything from people who walk rightly, who are doing good. And these are things, these are verses that are actually in scriptures, but they can be plucked out and almost thrown at us like a dart when we're not actually doing okay. And sometimes well-meaning, well-intentioned people and Christian people and people in our faith can actually say things about God and about faith and about wanting to help us, and it actually makes it worse. Sometimes it's insensitive. Sometimes it's just actually comes out of maybe where we think God is with us, impatience, it's like, well, oh, you're still asking for prayer for that? Or you're still struggling? You're not better yet? Like, what, what's going on? And, and that, there can be an impatience with us and a, and a thing of like, come on, come on. What I've actually realized is sometimes, you know, it comes out, actually, we start to get frustrated at the other person. You know why? Because it actually begins to disturb our own sense of God. Like, yeah, what, what, like, what, why is this taking so long? Or maybe you've experienced when you've put up your hand and said, I'm, I'm not okay to one person that suddenly 10 other people knew about it. And so there can be gossip in the church under, under the guise of maybe, oh, it's a prayer chain or a prayer letter or whatever that's gone out. Or maybe worst of all, just silence and awkwardness. As in faith community, when someone says, I'm not okay, we don't even know what to say. We don't even know what to do. How are you doing? We're not expecting actually the honest truth of like, I'm not okay. I'm still not okay. And so it can bring people to say, I don't know what to say. And because of all that, we can think that's who God is to us. That He's only concerned with triumph and victory. That He has little sort of Bible verse of the day things to get us through. That, he, that He's like trying, that He's getting impatient with us. Like, why are you taking so long to get better? Or that He has nothing to say at all. Friends, the, the beautiful news that we can actually know because of Scripture and what Scripture as it describes who God is, who we are, and how we relate to each other, that God is not at all like that. And so we actually want to use the Psalms because the Psalms are songs and prayers that become the prayer and worship manual for the church. And you might say, oh, the prayer and worship manual, that sounds as exciting as my coffee maker manual, like, and relevant. Like, how is that going to help? But no, think about this. The Psalms are, are actually songs of the poets. They are words of people that were honest that bared their soul as they described the full gamut of the human experience. Mind, body, soul, the good, the bad, the ugly, sin, sorrow, hope, victory, despair, depression, death that the, the worship manual that comes from the prayers of people who turn words into songs, I think it's why we relate so much to music. They give us words to sing. They invade our consciousness and our imagination. They can be so helpful to us, just like modern music is or whatever your favorite stuff is to blast when you get in the car. That's what the Psalms are. It is the book of prayer and praise that people wrote, and they were words that were written, and even though they were very personal, they were actually written... To be given to a community to sing and to say. And to chew on and meditate on. And so we're going to be using the Psalms throughout this journey. And our hope is that these books actually become life-giving for you. That it becomes your new favorite section of scripture in terms of teaching you how to pray and how to sing. Especially when you're saying, I'm not doing well. I'm not okay. Um, In that, they give us three things that we essentially need. Permission and direction, and communion. Permission, to be brutally honest, direction of what to do in the middle of this, and communion, in other words, relationship with God and each other. The song we're going to camp out in today that was read for you is Psalm 42. And it is a song. And it is also what's called a mascal. You might read that in your scripture. Well, what, the term mascal is you, as you, um, it, it's a, it's like, it's a kind of song. And what the commentators can mostly agree on is that it probably means that it, it was, um, it's a song that was meant to be uh, reflected on, like chewed on. It was one of those songs that makes you think, you know? And it's a song that, um, it was meant to teach. Like, we're teaching something, but it isn't like a lecture, it's a song. But as you reflect on the song, as you sing it, as the words become familiar to you, like you memorize songs and stuff, it's actually teaching your heart something. It's actually teaching you permission, direction, communion. Now, now think about this for a moment. It's a song, and you're like, really, it's a song? Like, somebody wrote this stuff? Like, this song would not pass our modern worship kind of filter um, some of it would but we would edit out some of the verses sing. we sing you can't say that out loud you can't sing that on a Sunday in fact there was a song worship song that was written from this many years ago called as the deer I'm not gonna sing it for you not because I don't like singing you know that I will sing in the sermon it's just that I don't like the song um, and it starts out with it's this beautiful lilting as the deer pants for water so my soul pants for you and then it goes on and writes other stuff not from this song and as this both this like beautiful picture of a nature would picture a deer coming out. And it's like, no, that's not at all what the song was. It it wasn't this nice, neat song. It begins with the psalmist, the the writer of the song, who we think was a songwriter for King David. So King David commissioned uh, this group of people to write songs for the people of God to sing says you know what i am as thirsty and dry as a being in the desert who cannot find any water and that's the beginning of this and so first of all we see it gives us permission permission to be brutally honest The terms downcast and disturbed, which could be a title for a heavy metal band's album, you know, is like actually echoed a couple of times throughout. He says, why so downcast my soul? Why disturbed within me? Now, you got to know that the word soul, um, it's from the Hebrew word "nephesh," And it doesn't mean what we think it is where um, sort of the disembodied kind of floaty, spirity part of us that has nothing to do with our, our, our physical bodies. That's more of a Platonic. Like Plato's idea. Um, the Hebrew understanding of soul was it was the sum total of everything that you were. Okay, so body, mind, spirit, like your, your, your thoughts, your feelings, your body, your spirit, everything related to God. The soul was kind of uh, everything kind of wrapped up together. And so he's saying, everything in me is dark and down, downcast and disturbed, down, you know, and, and not good unsettled there's a storm there's an I'm, I am disturbed within me he said and he's saying he's talking to himself why are you like this this is what I'm feeling this every part of me the the core of my being is not okay downcast and disturbed he repeats that theme throughout the psalm secondly then he says my tears have been my food have you ever have you ever tasted your own tears that they're salty right you know when you taste your own tears when they're flowing? You don't you don't taste your tears when you get choked up a little bit for a moment and your eyes water. You don't, they don't even leave your eyes. You taste your tears when they're flowing. When and and, and the, the, the writer says, I, I'm crying day and night. This is like a, a relentless amount of grief where my tears are flowing to the point that like I'm tasting them more than I'm tasting anything else, more than I'm tasting food. I am crying. I am regularly in grief, a weeping kind of grief. And he says, day and night. This is an honest admission by this person. I am, I, I am dark and unsettled at the core of my being, and I am weeping constantly. And then at one point he says, my bones are in mortal agony. And again, the concept of bones in the in the Hebrew culture was like right down to the core. You know, you have those days when maybe it's like cold out, and you come inside and you've got a sweater on a blanket, but you're still cold on the inside. This is like, he's like, oh, my, my bones are cold. This is this description of an of an agony that is, that is affected every part of him. And the bones were certainly a physical description. I can feel it in my body. This isn't just, you know, sort of a mind thing. This isn't just my feelings. This isn't just like a spiritual thing. Everything in me from head to toe, from the outside to the inside, from my spirit to my body is in agony. And so we clearly see here that this this song, that's why this song, we'd never write it and put it on the screen and have you sing it because you'd start to feel terrible on a Sunday morning, but we have, we have whitewashed and sanitized prayer and singing, but, but the scriptures don't do that. This is a songwriter bearing his soul to God and saying to the people, here's words for you to say when you are feeling downcast and disturbed, when there's a storm inside and things are not okay, when all you can do is cry, and when your very body aches because of the pain. We have permission and, and, and permission, and it gets even worse. He says, You know what's worse about this? People are taunting me saying, Where is your God? Where is your God? He said, People who know that I, I follow God are saying, If you follow God, why is your life a mess? Like, I thought, Why are you so upset? Or why hasn't this healed? Or why haven't you got better? Where is God? And many, many of you might say, yeah, like I have family members or a spouse or a child or a parent, uh, you know, that they are a colleague or a friend. They know I, I, I go to church. I, you, you do all that stuff. You pray, you go to church. Like, how come your life's a mess? How come things aren't, how come God isn't listening to you? You know what, realize though, sometimes even in the church we can say that to each other. And we don't say it like a mocking way, but we almost say it like, hey, don't you know God? Like, why are you saying this stuff? Like, don't you have faith? Where is your God? Like, I know my God would come through. How come he's not coming? Like, what's going on? There must be something broken in your faith. Or in your... Something's not right because the God I know would, would have healed by now. So something must be wrong with you. That can even come through in the where is your God? And you know what's the worst part of it? And and the, the psalm writer gets to this. It taps into our own questions. Where are you, God? Right? He says, I say to God, my rock... Hey, you're not my rock right now. Like, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? You're, you're, it's, it's, it's coming to this point where you're saying, like, and we've all done this, where, God, why aren't you helping me? And if you're not helping me, I'm actually starting to wonder, are you actually doing this to me? And, like, this isn't, like, a theological question. It's an existential one. Like if God isn't helping, he might as well be the one hurting because he's not helping me. So are you doing this? He says at one point, all your waves and breakers have crashed over me. And and I know we have a couple worship songs that talk about, oh, the waves, the, the God. But it is not a nice thing. I, I remember the first time I was learning to, to surf, w- which would imply that I know how to surf now, which I don't. But just is the very first time. I just figured, oh, I'll rent a board for five bucks. I was in Bali. I remember on my own. I thought, I'm going to try this. And I took it out and I remember the first big wave that came, like, turned me upside down, and I actually hit my head on the sand. Um, but then while I was under, another wave comes, so I feel the, the churn again, and this time I don't know which uh, way is up. Um, and I remember thinking, I'm trying to find the surface of the water. If there's another wave, I'm done. Like, that's what I thought. I thought I was going to drown. And, and the psalmist is saying, you're, It's like that. Your waves and breakers, God, I can't handle another wave. And he's saying, Your waves and breakers, in other words, God, are you doing this to me? Like, you're not helping me. Where are you in this? If you're not helping me, are you actually the cause of this? I don't even know. But I am not okay, and I cannot find you in this. Friends, long before Billie Eilish, the songwriter in Psalms was brutally honest and saying, this is where I'm at. I am not okay. I am messed up on the inside. I am crying day and night. My my whole being, my body is in agony. And people are saying stuff to me that's hurting me, that's not helping me. And to be honest, I am wondering myself, God, where you are. This is in Scripture. This gives us massive permission to be brutally honest in our prayers and with God. But it also gives us direction. Throughout the psalm, you know, if you read it, you'd think the psalm writer is kind of manic, like he's going back and forth. But this is what, it's all the experience of like, guess permission to say, I'm not okay. And at the same time, he's talking to himself. He said, why are you downcast and disturbed? Put your hope in God. He says, I can't even sort out where God is in this or whether he's even the cause of this, but I know this. I know the direction I need to go with this. I need to go up. I need to direct. He's actually directing his his song to God. And he's saying, I know you feel this way, but put your hope in God. You will praise him again. You remember when it used to be different. It can be like that again. There's direction in this. There's hope There's hope in this, saying, put your hope in God. It is the only place you have left. Even though you're not sure where he is, he is the only one who can pull you out. And so the psalmist gives us not only permission, but direction to say, put your hope in God again. Not only direction, but communion. Look what he says at the beginning. When can I meet with God? ultimately says, this is about getting back into relationship with God. This isn't simply about getting information from God about why I'm dealing with what I'm dealing with or why he hasn't fixed things. I want answers, yes, we want answers in the middle of these times. We want explanation, we want relief. But the songwriter writer says, the songwriter says, hey, ultimately, I want to meet with God again. I remember when I used to be close to Him. I remember when I was full of joy, when my spirit was alive in God, and that's what I want. That's what I need. Ultimately, what I need more than just being okay again is to be with God again, is to be connected to Him again. And so we get permission, direction, and communion. Now, this doesn't fix it all. I, I know that even what we're talking about here is just the beginning, and even in, in six weeks, we're not gonna fix everything. There's no silver bullet to this, especially if this is something that is, has, has spiritual roots and cognitive mental roots and emotional roots and behavioral roots and relational roots. And affected by our past and our present and all of that stuff. So there's no silver bullet to this. But, but we want to begin to peel the layers and say scripture actually gives us permission, direction, and communion. And so here's kind of where we're headed over the next few weeks. We, we're gonna actually talk about the role that addiction plays in this, either as a as a as a causal factor or as a result of, of not being okay. How, how grief and loss, you know, when we have when we're grieving things or when we have lost things, how that contributes to our sense of mental. Mental health and what's going on inside of us. How abuse and trauma for some of us have played a role in this. We have a guest speaker, Brett Ullman, who's going to be coming in and he'll, and he'll be in both um, locations and then he's actually doing a parenting seminar and that's on um, February 7th um, and so that's for parents of any age to actually say, how do we help our kids and create an environment where our kids can put up our hand and say, I'm not doing well and this, can, and our homes can be safe places for each other as we're working through this. And then the role of community. What does it mean to be a good, healthy, and helpful community to each other as we journey through this. And so that's where we're going over the next few weeks. But for just today, where do you go from here? And something that, that can, where, you, where do you start? You know, if, you, if you're in this, either if you're experiencing this firsthand or if you're walking with somebody. Um, I think we need a new habit. And I want in- to invite you in to begin to form a new habit and to take these few weeks to form a new habit. And that is to learn to pray in the dark. See, we have lots of habits when it comes to how we deal with not being okay. Right? For, for some of us, the habit is escape. And and those escapes at the very least you might be able to say you know what you know yeah I have a habit of binge watching because I just I just don't even want to think about it I don't I don't know how or I have a habit of overeating or drinking or smoking or whatever it is I just do too much of it and 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 it's actually destroying me it's not helping me and so some of us have habits that aren't helpful um, some of us our habit is is we're just we're just um, we're brutally honest, but nothing else. And so we, we just vent. Maybe you have that one person that you always call when you're not okay, and you just vent to them. And that's your habit. You like get it all out, you're angry, you write, you blog, you, you email, you text, you whatever, you phone call, But but that's it, there's nowhere to go from there. But that's your habit. Others of us have a habit of just stuffing it down. Like just work harder, play harder, fill my schedule, keep on moving, get more friends, hang out, do stuff tonight, do stuff the next night. What are we doing this weekend? And just keep on stuffing it down. And you're not dealing with it. And that can be a habit for some of us that's not helpful. And so we actually need to form a new habit, something that will begin to bleed into and affect everything else in us. And so what we want to encourage you to do is to actually begin to learn to pray um, in the dark and, 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 and to, we have some tools to do that. The Psalms would be your guide. And so that's part of why I'm unpacking Psalm 42 for you. And we're using a different Psalm every week. Our weekly blog actually tracks through this. And so we have blog writers who at the beginning of the week write a post that just kind of explains what is this psalm about? You know, a shorter version of what I've done here this morning. And actually invites us to then go, okay, how do I begin to read this thing? If this is a song, these are songs that are actually given to me to teach me how to sing, to actually how to sing in the dark, how to pray in the dark. These things actually are, I, I want to meditate on them. I want to chew on this. And there's a book that actually um, we recommend and we recommend to a lot of people by Dave Sherbino, who's a retired pastor and a professor at Tyndale Seminary. Um, Dave and I both took classes with him, and he's written a book called Reconnect, which actually is is a prayer book. It actually teaches us how to pray, and it's one of those prayer books, It's it's not boring, it's actually exercises, it gives you, teaches you how to do this. And so we just encourage you to use these things to begin to form a new habit. And here's why, here's why this is so worth it. We need to be people who in the middle of the dark, in a season that is persisting, that's not going away anytime soon, whether you've been through it or you're in it, or it may come when you don't expect it, that we have a habit, a go-to thing, an impulse that actually is helping us. It's helping us with permission and direction and ultimately communion with God. We need to be people like that. And even if you're someone saying, no, I am okay, good. You need to be someone who can pray in the dark with someone who isn't okay. Okay. Like that they can come to you and say, I don't have any more words, can you pray with me? And that you would say, okay, I'm not going to throw all these trite little verses and say, oh, everything will get better. God, just heal this person tomorrow. And yes, we can pray for healing, but just, okay, I know how to pray in the dark. I'm going to do that with you. But we also want to become a community that knows how to do that for each other and becomes a refuge, not an escape, a refuge for a whole culture that is crying out for hope.